Talk Radio 1210, WPHT, WPHT, HD, WOGL, HD3, Philadelphia, a radio.com station. Live from the Malamut and Associates Law Studios, it's time for the Delaware Valley's first radio doctor. On call every Sunday morning at 10. This is your radio doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie. I'm not declaring a public health emergency of international concern today. As it was yesterday, the emergency committee was divided over whether the outbreak of novel coronavirus represents a fake or not. Your health determines your life, your longevity, and your happiness. Let your radio doctor lead the way with your medical education. Your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie. As we come on the air this morning with your radio doctor headlines 31 minutes ago on Philly.com, coronavirus death toll in the U.S. tops 2,000. CDC advises New Jersey, New York residents to avoid domestic travel. And Philly braces for coronavirus surge. Good morning, everyone, and welcome into a special edition, a live edition of Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Doc? Thank you so much, Joe. We have a great lineup of guests today, including the return of the super team we had on our first live show on March 8th. Remember, if you want to review what we discussed today, or if you know someone who couldn't join us, visit our website. All the shows are on podcast. You can listen anytime at yourradiodoctor.com. We'll be hearing from our guests by phone because of social distancing, which is so important. If you hear nothing else today, remember how important that is. We have Dr. John Zerlo, Distinguished Professor, Chief of Infectious Disease from Jefferson, Dr. Ed Jasper, Director of our COVID-19 Task Force at Jefferson, and Dr. Steve Allis from the Department of Health. He's Director of Disease Control. In addition, we welcome Mr. Dan Hilferty, President and CEO of Independence Blue Cross and Chair of the Philadelphia Chamber of Commerce. Lots of important information to share this morning about this dynamic situation. Welcome, Dr. John Zerlo. Thank you. Happy to be here. Thank you, John. We've been watching this picture evolve, and what we've learned from cases we've seen so far in the U.S. Can you tell us anything new since we last spoke? Well, um, you know, I think in terms of um, just seeing more cases, we're appreciating that there is a bit of a spectrum of what we can, what we're seeing. Um, you know, based on what's been published, and certainly based on what we're seeing. It's clear that when people develop this, um, the most common symptoms really tend to be fever along with cough. Sometimes that cough is productive. In other words, people coughing up sputum or phlegm. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a, kind of a bad turn when people start developing shortness of breath. That would suggest that, uh, that pneumonia is, has become significant. So those would be the typical symptoms. And I don't think that's changed very much, but just I think in our experience, as we see more and more of these people, we have, you know, lots of anecdotal cases of, you know, you hear a story of, and, you know, one example, uh, a physician that we know just kind of developed some scratchy throat, uh, mm-hmm. decided just to, to be the, the, the logical thing and get tested and, and positive, otherwise feeling well, never really had any major troubles. Remember, about 80% of people who develop this develop you know, often a bad cold, sometimes not even that bad, and then they recover, they don't get hospitalized, and presumably they've, they will have developed some kind of immunity. But once again, we've seen a lot of unusual presentations, and I think one of the challenges is um, trying to really recognize who might have COVID, especially in the, uh, in the healthcare setting. Uh, we've taken, uh, in, in our hospitals, to try and protect every one of our employees who are on the front line seeing patients and, and actually uh, putting masks on everyone right now. Sure. Well, it's interesting because the more you listen to the reports, I've heard, um, and as, as have you, that some patients begin their course with GI symptoms. Any comments about yeah. that? Yeah, we've certainly seen some of that, and, and uh, there's a paper that came out recently that that for people who develop GI symptoms, maybe they tend to have a higher likelihood of getting sick. GI symptoms include, um, you know, nausea, diarrhea, abdominal pain, that kind of thing. So I don't know how frequent that is. It's, it's in the reports of these case series, largely from China initially, and now 
increasing numbers of case series from everywhere else. Um, That's probably an uncommon presentation, but certainly something we have to recognize. Right, and something for our listeners to, to remember. And I see, too, when we're, as doctors in our conversation, we're doing swabs of the nasopharynx, either the nose or the back of the throat, but it's also uh, popping up in the literature that sometimes stool is positive. They presented a case in the literature of a young woman who had all the classic fever, chest, chest CAT scan, classic signs, and they tested her throat several times negative, but they found it in her stool. So I guess we'll learn more and more from these patterns as we collect more data. John, the other question I had was I'm listening to a an infectious disease specialist who's on uh, different shows, and he's connecting or he's trending a pattern of the virus more commonly with diabetes, and that he has 23 patients in the hospital. 22 of them have diabetes or prediabetes. 14 out of 15 on ventilators have diabetes. Have you seen that at all yet? That has been described in the literature. Um, Diabetes seems to be one of the medical illnesses that predispose to people getting um, a bit sicker from from COVID. There's a list of uh, of, um, medical problems, including cardiovascular disease, in other words, heart disease. Um, Diabetes is included, even high blood pressure. So there are some, some underlying illnesses that seem to predispose people to getting a bit sicker for reasons that are not entirely clear. Sure. Well, for our listeners, when we talk about how we treat a virus, there's a whole menu of therapy. We can either try to stop the virus from multiplying or we can block the virus from getting into the cell. Um, or For our listeners, an antibody um, is a soldier that your system makes. So a virus is a molecule that stimulates your immune system. A virus is a foreign body, and then your immune system makes certain types of um, makes antibodies or soldiers to kill the incoming virus or bacteria. So we can measure antibodies with certain testing and find out who's been exposed to the virus or what we're talking about is using antibodies from somebody who's recovered to treat a patient who's critically ill. Can you talk about any of the treatments that you're considering right now, John, or what's happening in your world? Yeah, let me give you an overview of where I see things. Right now, the only drug that has at least some potential for benefit is this medication hydroxychloroquine or chloroquine, which is an anti-malarial treatment. Um, we have scant little data that that, that that is effective. We have some information from a, a small study in France that it quickly decreases the load of virus that we could measure. But we don't really have any data that would suggest that it's truly effective in treating or, or at least reducing the chances of complications among individuals with, uh, with COVID. There are ongoing studies uh, doing that. Right now, since it's the only thing available, we do uh, treat patients with it, but it's, it's not clear that it's of any value. There are a couple of antiviral medications. Everyone has probably heard of remdesivir, which mm-hmm. is a, a medicine created by a, a company in California, Gilead. Uh, that's being it, it, there are a lot of clinical trials and it seems very promising. There's a, a, a drug from Japan and China called Febapiravir, um, and and the Chinese report some efficacy or but we don't have that available to us. And I think the last piece and maybe in my view the, the probably in the short run maybe the most helpful thing would be just as you suggested taking plasma from people who've had the infection who've then developed antibodies and infusing that plasma into people to keep them from getting sick, perhaps those who get hospitalized but are not so sick as to be in the intensive care unit, for example, and this way we can avert or prevent them from getting really sick. There's now a national uh, uh, study and and project that's going on that uh, will hopefully get this moving. We're, we're soon to start this here at, at Jefferson. Uh, this is one of my top priorities right now is to, to try and get this plasma because I think in the near term, this is probably our best chance to really help people. And this is, you know, something that's been done um, for many, many years, what we call passive immunization, um, you know, infusing these protective antibodies from people who've recovered from the infection in hopes of 
uh, again, of saving lives, of improving the, the course sure. of the illness. Well, and I think what people need to understand is when Dr. Fauci hesitates and says, we can't just jump into using uh, hydroxychloroquine and ZPAC in everybody because he's concerned. He wants trials, of course. Time is the most precious commodity, but he wants these trials because of the possible side effects. People can get dangerous um, abnormal heart rhythms that even can cause sudden deaths with the meds, and people that have a a genetic deficiency of G6PD, it's an element in the blood for our listeners that can cause um, your red cells to be destroyed, hemolytic anemia, which can be very dangerous. It's found in uh, probably more commonly in African-Americans, people of Asian and Mediterranean descent. And lastly, John, the literature is talking about possibly eight different strains of the virus, which really don't seem to matter in terms of um, differences in presentations. It's interesting, as you say, some people have a really light course, other people we see uh, deteriorate very quickly. But what's, what's the lesson for our listeners is that by studying these uh, genetic differences among the strains, there's a big uh, center or a, a website called nextstrain.org. Labs around the world enter their data and can tell how the virus is migrating and splitting. The point is it's proving that some of these strains survive and some die out thanks to quarantine, quarantine, quarantine. That's what the average listener has to hear us say today. Six feet, separation. Yeah, and, you know, there's another important important issue that I want to at least raise because uh, we talked about this on the previous call, the issue of using masks. Now, I mentioned that healthcare workers at our institutions now are, are, are masked because we're concerned we don't know who's infected and, and it's really important for everyone's sake that we have a healthy workforce. Um, there are many who are now suggesting that masks, even you know, in, in public when you're perhaps in close quarters with other people, may be of an advantage. Um, the, the head of the Chinese CDC was interviewed in, in Science Magazine this week. Now he's Harvard trained, he's been through this epidemic. And he thinks an important and maybe one of the most important ways to to uh, control the epidemic might be for masking under these uh, circumstances. Once again, three or four weeks ago, when asked that question, I would have said, well, we don't really know what the benefits of masking really are. But now, I, you know, I'm, I'm wondering uh, whether, again, in, in situations where you're going to be in public, whether masks will have some advantage. There's a lot now discussed in the national press and and among a lot of healthcare leaders about the role of masking uh, as a general statement for the public. Well, John, thank you so much for joining us today. I know you're busy around the clock, and I hope our listeners are um, learning a lot. Thank you. God bless and stay well. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thank Dr. You. John, that's Dr. John Zerlo joining Dr. Marianne here on Your Radio Doctor as we broadcast to you live on this Sunday morning here on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. We'll get to a com- c- quick commercial break and join you on either side. And back here live on a Sunday, this is Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Coming up at the bottom of the hour, uh, Dr. Marianne will talk with Dr. Ed Jasper. And a little bit later on in the show, Dr. Steve Alice will join uh, Dr. Marianne again live here on Your Radio Doctor. Friday of this week, Dr. Marianne had an opportunity to sit down and talk with the CEO of Independence Blue Cross, Dan Hilferty. Here's that interview with Dr. Marianne. Welcome back, friends. As you know, we have a spectacular lineup of guests today to discuss the coronavirus from every side. Our next guest needs no introduction. Mr. Dan Hilferty, a highly respected business leader in our city and beyond. He's a man of action, and more importantly, he's a man of his word. In 2015, he was one of the key organizers that brought the Pope to the Parkway. Pope Francis celebrated Mass for nearly a million people. It was orderly, it was peaceful, it was heavenly. And Dan made sure it didn't rain. He's been recognized with countless awards for his service, leadership, and generosity. But right now, in March of 2020, when our nation faces an unprecedented challenge, 
a virus that's infecting people and affecting the economy, this is the right man at the right time to be the CEO and president of Independence Blue Cross and the chair of the Philadelphia Chamber of Commerce. But maybe his most important badge of distinction is that he is my fellow St. Joe Hawk. A special shout out to our fellow alumni from St. Joseph's University who are listening today. And Dan, we're so cool that we were there when it was St. Joe's College. So welcome and thank you for joining us today, Dan. Well, Dr. Ritchie, Marianne, it's so nice to be with you today. And um, I'm, I'm smiling, thinking about, I don't know what I had to do with keeping the rain away uh, during the Pope's visit, but I, I appreciate the acknowledgement. And, and you're right, we did attend St. Joseph's when it was St. Joseph's College. And uh, I, have, I have fond memories of, of that great institution, as I'm sure you, you do as well. So let's first talk about Blue Cross, because... Not only is Independence Blue Cross a major employer in the region, it's also the leading health insurer. So with all these moving parts, how is Blue Cross responding to the crisis? Well, Mary, and I, I believe that is the key question, and, and I, uh, not to get into all these areas, but I tend to divide our role in, in um, keeping folks educated and leading the region, and, and frankly, most importantly, keeping our associates, their families, and all of our members, in fact, all the citizens of the region, as, uh, as healthy as possible and give them the information they need to stay healthy. So I look at it from an overall regional approach. I look at it from uh, focused on our members and all citizens. And I look at it from an Independence Health Group perspective, Independence Blue Cross perspective. So that, that was your question. I would say this. Um, our top priority is to make sure that, that our associates are safe. Uh, that's why we moved to a, an approach, a remote approach for all of our business activities. Interestingly enough, we, we pride ourselves in, on being innovative in, in the healthcare space. And for a number of years, we've been testing and probing in ways that we could move more of our, our, our operations to a work from home uh, structure and have tested with different areas of the company. We'd send them off site for a couple of weeks. Uh, we'd uh, see how that worked. We'd tweak it. And now in the face of this pandemic, uh, it has been um, a real smooth operation for us. Now, I have to say the systems have been taxed because of the, the increase of the, the, the volume, so to speak. And, uh, but overall, we haven't missed a beat. Now, it's, it's a temporary, uh, how do I say this, new normal in interacting with the provider community, in interacting with uh, government, and in interacting with our members and our associates. But, but uh, for the most part, in this temporary new normal, uh, we've learned a lot. Our, our, our work from home is, has been successful for the most part, and we continue to try to engage the, the provider community, which is our fourth area of focus, in a constructive way. Well, so the great thing is really you're protecting your employees by keeping them at home, but you're also protecting the community because there are fewer people in the mix and you're really helping to stop the spread. And I know you're in frequent communication with the governor, Dan. Uh, yes, Marianne, it's, it's, it's interesting. We, uh, a number of us have been very fortunate. Um, I have an opportunity to talk regularly to, to Mayor Kenny, talk regularly to Governor Wolf. Uh, we were help, helpful in convening a meeting of uh, the governor, the mayor, uh, the leads of the, the government heads of the various uh, uh, surrounding counties. Uh, for example, Dr. Val Arcouche, who is, who is chair of Montgomery County Commission. And we really talked about a regional approach to keeping on top of the spread of the virus, on treatment of the virus, making sure that there are hospital beds, that we are finding PPEs, any issue that might arise. I have to say, the leadership that we have in the health systems of this region is second to none. Uh, whether you're talking about Madeline Bell at Children's Hospital, you're talking about Kevin Mahoney at Penn Medicine, Steve Clasco at Jefferson, many, many others. They are working together. They have put together a system through the Hospital Association of Pennsylvania, who is a contract with the health department. It is a dashboard, as, as close to real-time dashboard, that are helping all the healthcare professionals right down to the clinician level interact and coordinate their response to this, uh, this uh, epidemic. 
it's as though the stars and planets are aligned uh, that we have, the, the leaders that we do today. So, Dan, tell us, the listeners, what about your members, the people you insure? What are they most concerned about? What's a common call that your staff is getting? Uh, that, that, is a, that is a key question. And I think first and foremost, um, there's, there's the fear of, hey, how do, I, how do I avoid exposure here? So we've been very active. Uh, I don't know if you've seen our ad campaign. It's really talking to people about sheltering at home, uh, making sure that they, they keep a distance from, from neighbors and friends, to make sure that they are continually washing their hands. And if, in fact, they have an issue, be it uh, in physical nature or behavioral nature, that they, they realize they have an opportunity to use telemedicine. And we're working closely with the provider community to get the word out that if you need to talk to a, a health professional, a physician, another clinician, that, that you can do it via telemedicine. So we're continuing to reinforce that message. We'll have a, a second set of uh, ads and messages to our members that give them ideas on how to access the telemedicine, number one. Number two, if they're feeling certain levels of anxiety or or other uh, mental or behavioral health distresses or issues, that also they should connect to a healthcare professional. So we're hearing a lot about that. I think for the most part, our members, all citizens have been very cooperative, working closely with the health systems and their individual primary care physician to, to make sure they back off elective services, for example, and focus on only those services that are critically needed during the pandemic. In response, uh, I have seen your commercials on TV. They are absolutely beautiful. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure that people find great comfort because you're very calm and reassuring, Dan. And, and as a leader in the city, that's what people are looking for. Um, and telehealth, our office, uh, as people out there know, I'm a GI doctor. The telehealth, when it first came around about a year and a half ago, um, I thought, gee whiz, if your car is making a noise, I'm going to say, you have to bring it in so I can lift the hood and look at the spark plugs. I wasn't uh, real keen on it initially. But what I have learned is it's better than nothing at all. And with the video, when I can actually see the person's face and see that they're comfortable and relaxed and not in pain or it's it's a big help to me as the provider, but it's also a big help to the patient that they can see me and we can talk things through about their latest test results or what they can do to stay safe until I get to see them again. And I, and I also wonder if telehealth will become one of our new norms, especially for people who have difficulty traveling because of age or distance and they want to talk to a specialist at a different hospital. So that i'm sure is blossoming and, and i'm sure that blue cross is expanding your coverage for telemedicine too uh well marianne first and foremost uh I, as you're speaking and thank you for complimenting us on the ads there will be a, a a number of new ads coming out one as i said focusing on telemedicine one focusing on behavioral health and frankly one focusing on how best we can serve our senior community during this this crisis so let me let me say something first though um, uh, I've known you for a lot of years, more years than the two of us would, <laughs> would like to admit on this program. But, but, but what I will say is uh, the leadership role that you have taken in making sure that uh, women across this community uh, understand the need for regular testing, um, be it breast cancer, uh, be it anything tied into your, your specialty, uh, or, or other areas of, of, uh, of this battle against cancer. And, and I just have to say, you talk about leadership. Uh, we, at, we at Independence Blue Cross marvel at uh, your tenacity and your uh, effectiveness in, in educating the community. So I probably need to say that. In terms of telemedicine, yes, we have done a couple of things. We have worked closely with each of the uh, health systems in terms of um, ensuring that we have a, a payment structure, that we get rid of as many hurdles as possible for people to access it in terms of co-pays. Uh, and, and here's how we look at it. We, when I referenced earlier that this is maybe a temporary new normal, we believe there are certain aspects of that we're learning during this, this pandemic that will become the new normal. And we believe telemedicine as you articulated, I can't improve upon that, will become 
essential part of a new normal uh, where appropriate, because I, I think that uh, uh, those of you who take the Hippocratic Oath certainly understand there's a time that you need to look, not just on a video screen, but you need to look a patient in the eyes. You need to be able to understand by touch and other ways exactly what's going on in their body or in their mind. So um, we're committed to it long term. And so far, it has been a terrific tool during the, this time. Oh, it's been wonderful. And I'll tell you, there's a concept we learned in medical school called the Hippocratic facies. It's right there in the person's face. And when I get called to the emergency room, there might be 10 people in 10 different rooms with belly pain. And I can walk into a room and see a person's face and in a sentence or two, figure out whether that's an obstructed bowel or an ovarian cyst, a virus, uh, appendicitis. It's right there in the person's face. So you mentioned that uh, you were very kind in what you said about fighting cancer because of the program that I started called Pink Plus. And Dan, I have to bring in Dr. Rich Schneider right now because I was going to talk about him a little bit later. I will tell you that not only with Dan, when I've sat down with him and his chief medical officer, Dr. Rich Snyder, unbelievable. He is so knowledgeable and so gracious, Dan. Always gives me time. We talk about projects and I was really happy to come back to uh, be a speaker for the Women of Independence. Great programs for your employees that you bring speakers in to talk about health issues and screenings. And we talked about bundling breast, colon, and GYN screenings in one visit. And I think that will capture more people. So I want to hear a little bit more about the PHL COVID fund. And we'll tell our listeners how they can read about that online. But I know you're working with public officials, and you had the press conference with the mayor last Friday. Tell us about the PHL COVID-19 fund. That is fantastic. Well, Marianne, thank you for referencing that. Um, really, from, from an independence perspective, we rely heavily on working closely with um, non-for-profit organizations who are in the communities, working with all sorts of, of folks, from, frankly, from the elderly through to those who, who are most impacted by the social determinants of health and the hurdles that are inherent in some of those uh, social determinants. Um, this idea was uh, the brainchild of, of Mayor Jim Kenney, along with the team at United Way uh, and the team at the Philadelphia Foundation. Um, when Jim called me and said, is this something you'd be interested in? We jumped at the opportunity. Uh, one, because it illustrated that uh, we have a pathway for these these not-for-profits who are struggling in this time to, to get access some funds to continue their important work. Number two, from my perspective, as chairman of the Greater Philadelphia Chamber of Commerce, was an opportunity for us to connect the business community through the great work that Rob Wonderling and the team at the Chamber do into supporting a hands-on effort to get needed resources to these great community organizations that focus on uh, getting people food, getting them access to health care, getting them access to other things that they need to sustain themselves. Uh, right now, I don't know the exact number, but I know that the fund is over $7 million. There, are, uh, there is a process that, that these not-for-profits can follow online to, to apply for grants and that the process is up and running and underway uh, for, for the good of the community. It's from Independence's perspective, this is our mission, this is who we are, and it's an opportunity for us to continue that collaborative work with these incredible neighborhood-based not-for-profit organizations. Sure. And for our listeners, for more information, you can visit PHL COVID, and COVID represents the corona virus disease. So that's how you can remember it. Corona, CO, viral, VID for disease, COVID-19. So phlcovid19fund.org for more information. And we're back here live on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. This is your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne, with a great interview uh, with Dan Hilford. He will have more of that interview uh, at the very end of the show. But, Marianne, I want to come to you uh, to get the second half of the show underway. 
And thank you once again, Joe. Now we turn to my colleague, Dr. Ed Jasper, head of our COVID-19 task force at Jefferson. Welcome in, Ed. Thank you so much for your time today. Happy to be here. Ed, we can look at the predictive models. The more data we get from China and Europe and South Korea, the more we can set up predictive models for the U.S. And we don't know exactly when the Philadelphia hospitals might surge or when our case numbers will peak. But where are we on the hospital level right now? Any comments about that? Well, we have not seen the peaks that New York and other areas have seen. And not every area that gets cases gets these, you know, big, huge influxes of new cases. Uh, we're planning for it. We figure we're a couple weeks behind New York. So if that surge is going to come, it will be soon. Um, so every hospital, we're sharing information. We're talking about it. We realize that when you look at all the areas, Italy and Seattle, New York, they all say the same thing. There was kind of an eerie quiet before the storm, and then within several days, there was a big, huge increase in numbers, including severely ill patients. So we're just planning as if that's going to happen, but it hasn't right. happened yet. Yeah, and every time I hear you speak, I feel better. I have to say to our listeners, once again, Dr. Jasper is the head of disaster preparedness, uh, which is a huge um, – Jefferson has 14 hospitals, and he's in a – fantastic network with all the other hospitals in Philadelphia, and it just brings us comfort to hear that you've been preparing for decades, Ed, really. The big announcement on Friday tells about that. The FDA approved the device made by Abbott Labs, which can provide, and tell me if I'm right, a positive test within five minutes and a negative within 13. Tell us about that new test, if you would. Yeah, there is a new test. We haven't been using it yet at Jefferson. Um, at still needs to be evaluated a little further. But we, like most other hospitals, have increased our capacity. Uh, probably later this week we'll be able to do 600 tests a day. We're doing over 200 now with standard PCR tests. So that would be nice to have a more rapid test. But, again, we're able to run them within a few hours using our current PCR testing. So that the uh, capacity to run a lot of tests quickly has really ramped up quite a bit in the last week. Which is wonderful because they're predicting if this is um, effective, they'll be able to increase testing to as many as 50,000 a day. And Dr. Deborah Burks uh, is on press conferences saying that 5 million tests in a month is what she's hoping for for April. And I know right now that new platform is, is described, the test is described as a platform, is the size of a toaster and that they're working on ones that are – fit in the palm of your hand. So we'll be seeing them, I guess, in urgent cares and even in doctor's offices. Um, and another beautiful place would be in nursing, uh, nursing care facilities where they could say, you know, the um, residents are positive or negative and, and uh, know how to isolate, et cetera. Um, and I guess another good thing about rapid testing is if we can test quickly, then it will expedite the process in drive throughs and again, your big concern is healthcare workers. I'm saying you, everyone's, but you as looking over the chessboard at a place like Jefferson, decreased risk to healthcare workers and decrease the need for PPE for our listeners. That's personal protective equipment. Tell us about that. Yeah, so I mean, part of the problem with the tests are their sensitivity is difficult to, to tell. But right. They're usually very specific. So if it's positive, person does have it. But if it's negative, we really don't know. The less the less ill you are, you may shed less virus. It may not be a perfect sample. So even 60 or 70 percent may be what these tests wind up being as far as picking up the cases, meaning they might miss 30 or 40. So just a negative test in itself doesn't prove that the person doesn't have it. Um, fortunately, many of the people getting tested as an outpatient have mild symptoms. Um, it may come down to the point where it's very prevalent. And just like with flu, we don't really even test anybody, you know, everybody. We just test the ones where if it was positive would make a difference in the treatment. But uh, regarding PPE, was that your second question, Marianne? Yeah, well, PPE is that if, uh, if we can do these tests more rapidly and even the people can do them themselves, then you won't be using healthcare workers to do that and we won't need them in protective uh, gear. Right. We'll be saving on that shortage, too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. 
So we, we're hearing that uh, commercial businesses are stepping up, like 3M is um, ramping up production of uh, the N95 masks, and with the president asking private companies to repurpose their plants to manufacture ventilators. It sounds like we're really uh, getting help finally with ventilators. How are we doing in Philadelphia? So right now, since the census of most of the hospitals is, is lower than normal uh, because of canceling elective surgeries and that type of thing, we have a decent number of beds and we have a significant number of ventilators that aren't being used. But remember, we looked at Italy and all the other areas, New York and Seattle and others, um, and they had the same situation where there was that calm before the storm. So we're not uh, resting on our laurels and assuming that we have more than enough. There, there is a good supply, but, but we do recognize that the surge might um, use all of them up, and we're planning for that. Well, and I think what's, what is good, too, is that you have learned, or I mean, you knew this before, but for our listeners, that we can use um, machines that ordinarily are used for outpatient surgeries and, and the ORs that will add to our collection of ventilators. So overall, Ed, you're an emergency room doctor for our listeners to know. Would you guess that in the beginning, especially since before we had COVID testing, since COVID outbreak is simultaneous with the flu outbreak. Would you guess that COVID was misdiagnosed as the flu early on? I mean, that's always possible. Uh, we, we really have no way of knowing that for sure. There's not a high incidence of co-infection with flu uh, and COVID. And for a while, we were testing everybody for flu to try to rule out COVID. Uh, we're not doing that so much anymore. Um, but yes, it's possible. They're very similar in many ways. Um, so it's it's typical to distinguish one versus the other. Sure, sure. I just mean like now with the rapid testing or, or with testing for antibodies, one of the good things, because you have to worry about staffing among your, you know, you are Mr. Supply Chain and you're helping us determine staffing and where it goes and everything. In terms of ha- healthcare staff, if we can test rapidly and find out about antibodies, maybe people who are, were without symptoms but have immunity, those people can go back to work. Right. And there's mostly, if you've recovered, you do have some immunity to the disease, but we don't know if that's 100% protective. Um, There are some possibilities of people getting it again. Uh, We really don't know yet, but but definitely it's something to look at. Convalescent serum to use for treatment is being looked at. Um, And likely if you did get it again, the disease would be more mild. So yes, to your point, the people that have recovered um, could be a significant advantage for the workforce. Well, and one of the things I really admire you about uh, for, Ed, among other things, is each time you say, we don't know, I'm fascinated by people that get on the air and say, well, we know, blah, 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 because just even Neil Ferguson, a a highly respected uh, opinion from uh, England, was making big projections. And we have to be able to guesstimate, but we also have to be fluid because this is a dynamic, evolving problem. And we do know also that mortality is driven by age and those with underlying diseases for the most part. But you're working not only to increase availability of hospital beds and vents, but to protect the most vulnerable. So again, with each segment, I'm reminding people of the importance of social distancing and not go bring your children to a crowded park, not go to a crowded boardwalk, all those things. That's the job of each of us social distancing. And I guess I guess we continue to learn what will help us with future pandemics and being prepared, and that's your big role. Yeah, definitely a big role for social distancing, and um, uh, Dr. Alice from the health department has really been prominent in, in promoting that as well. Well, thank you so much, Ed. Stay well. We appreciate your help. Okay, you too. Great stuff there with Dr. Mary Ann and Dr. Ed Jasper as we bring you your radio doctor live on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. We'll get to a short 60-second break on the other side. Uh, The other member of the super team that Dr. Mary Ann has assembled, Dr. Steve Allis, he'll be with us here live back in a moment. And we're back here live on a Sunday morning here on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. This is... 
your radio doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie. I'm Joe Krause on a Sunday. Right back to you, uh, Dr. Marianne, as you have uh, the third member of what you described as your super team uh, joining you live here today, uh, bringing the most relevant information to uh, the listening audience. Thank you, Joe, and welcome, Dr. Steve Allis, Director of Disease Control for the Philadelphia Department of Health. Good morning, Steve. Good morning, Marianne. Thanks for having me. Oh, thank you. I've saved the big picture questions for you, Steve, because we know we've talked about testing, and testing is great because the more data we have, we know where the virus is. We can almost guesstimate where it's going and the impact of mitigation. This is day 14 of the 15 days to stop the spread. So let's go back to asking you, where should people, when should people seek care? Whom should be tested and where they can get tested in the city? Let's start with whom should be tested. Yeah, so first, uh, most people that get this disease have mild symptoms and it's, it really looks more like uh, a common cold, maybe a little bit more severe, lasts a handful of days and people recover on their own. That's what we're seeing with most children, young adults, and otherwise healthy people. So I guess to say who should really seek care and seek testing, the first thing I would say is if this is really feeling like a cold or a winter respiratory virus that you might be used to having, you have to ask yourself, is this something I would go to healthcare for given the symptoms that, that somebody might be experiencing. And if the answer is no, I would just wait this out at home, you know, hang out for two or three days in my house, take care of myself, and it would go away, then most people should do exactly that. And you don't need a test to tell you that you've had it or, you ha- or it, it is COVID-19 or it isn't COVID-19. What I'll also say is typically we track a lot of respiratory viruses in the city's health department for what's circulating and at what rates. And so a couple of, you know, a month ago, two months ago, we were seeing a lot of influenza, other respiratory viruses were circulating at high frequency when we were starting to look for COVID-19. So then it was more important for us to test people that might have had it to find out, do we actually have the first cases in Philadelphia and were they associated with travel, et cetera. But now flu, influenza, and other respiratory viruses, given that we're at the end of March, have really tapered off. And we don't have a lot of those diseases circulating in the city like we did a month or two months ago. So the point is, now that we do have confirmed cases of COVID-19, most people that have symptoms like that, consistent with COVID-19, so fever, cough, shortness of breath, other kinds of symptoms, it's more likely that they actually have COVID-19. And so, like I say, if you're mildly symptomatic with it, not needing to go, uh, even you wouldn't normally call your doctor, over-the-counter medications are something that you might take in something like this, that's what you should do. And it's real, we're getting to the point now, probably in another two weeks, that if, if anyone has symptoms like this, it's probably COVID-19. And the test result won't really make a difference in your care or whether you should separate yourself from other people because you should do that. People should separate themselves if they have symptoms. So right. where, who, should, who should get tested now? Would you like me to answer that question and where? Oh, yeah. I, I, I keep going. You're on a roll. It's great. <laughs> All right. So right now we're, we're, we're recommending that testing really primarily is for people that work in healthcare or say are somebody who had the disease, like a nursing home resident that had to go to the hospital to get care, and then they've gotten better. Now they're being discharged out of the hospital. That's a good case to test because we want to see if they've cleared virus or are they still infectious? Because if they're still infectious, then we need to put in uh, enhanced infection control procedures at, say, the nursing home they're going back to or whatever. It's also helpful to test uh, healthcare workers that have had an exposure, say, in the healthcare setting, because it, clear, it can clear them potentially or tell us that they may not be infectious. And so we can continue to have them keep working as long as they remain asymptomatic. So those are optimal. And then for people that might do very poorly with the disease, so seniors, people with chronic underlying conditions, getting a test in that population helps us understand that it is, in fact, this disease. And therefore, that might guide specific treatment for people that are seriously ill. 
testing has become much more widely available in and around the city. And so multiple health systems are offering the test now to their patients. And then there's also a couple of the big healthcare systems that um, will accept other patients as well. And then the city has stood up a drive-through testing site down at Citizens Bank Park that we're running for afternoon hours every day. And then, but the, the, for people that are, have symptoms or concerned, you know, are, are, are sick enough that they should call their doctor, that's the first place to start to get an assessment and then find out if testing is warranted and where they should specifically go. Well, I think it's great that you shared where people can go, Citizens Bank Park. But the other thing is to remind our listeners, if you do call your doctor and find it that you're going to head to a doctor's office or even a testing site um, or the emergency room, please call ahead so they're ready to separate you. Quarantine means we don't know if you're infected and we set you set yourself aside. Isolation means a person does know they're infected and they have to be separated either in the hospital or wherever they are. So, um, you know, we listen to Dr. Burks again on the press conferences and the, the widespread testing that she and Dr. Fauci have had decades of experience with preventing AIDS and saving millions of lives. They can tell from widespread testing within a GPS coordinate in sub-Saharan Africa where a disease starts and where it's going. So all of these things combined with your help and, and Jasper and all the hospitals coordinating will really help us. But it's good public health, really, to combine our widespread testing data, be able to contact, contract, excuse me, <laughs> trace the contacts, and then critical support from our citizens. We have to respect the social distancing that I'm not always seeing. I don't go out very much. We're doing most of my, uh, all my patients by telehealth. But the other day I stopped in the store to pick up uh, my husband's medications, and people are not, we have to reiterate, social distancing is so important. I see, too, there's a, a need uh, across the country. Uh, Philadelphia is short on blood supply. We're asking people to donate to the Red Cross if they can. Can you comment on that at all, Ed, Steve? Steve? Uh, yeah, uh, so um, it's good to donate blood. I think that that's you know, it's not really my area of expertise, what the supply is at, or to know you yeah. know, where what the levels are, what's being used. But like I think Dr. Jasper mentioned here in Philadelphia, you know, we're preparing for an influx of COVID-19 patients. And so right right now things things are pretty quiet. Elective surgeries have been canceled in a lot of places. So from my understanding, at least locally in our city, a lot of resources to provide care are in good shape right now. We're waiting for that surge of patients to potentially hit our hospitals and care system. Right. I didn't know whether that was something that come up, came up at city meetings. Um, Steve, one of the questions that uh, our listeners have called in with is for those who work in the wastewater industry, like wastewater plant plumbers, people are concerned, uh, workers that have to deal with um, sanitation or wastewater, are they at risk because the COVID or the virus, SARS-2, is being found in bodily fluids? Yeah, so I think the risk to workers like this that deal with sewage or other kinds of wastewater sources, um, there are many other infectious diseases that are are shed in urine and feces and all of that. And the risk really, it's, it's just another virus that might be in that environment. I can't speak to really knowing what the data has said with respect to how uh, if COVID-19 is found in those sources, if it's viable, is it an infectious organism? But what I would say is that the infection prevention and control strategies that are in place for those individuals really should apply to this additional viral threat. But I'm not going to comment on whether or not that threat really exists in that setting because I don't think we no. know. No, of course not. Um, and I think, again, um, I guess your big um, push is, letting people know who should seek care and where they can be tested. Um, is there anything else you wanted to mention on the city level that I haven't asked you about? Well, I think so we're seeing an unprecedented implementation of social distancing and many, many more people working remotely, which is great. 
other people, you know, other businesses that are just shut down, not operating. And so it's a it's unprecedented times to see this level of decrease in public interacting with other people to try to control the spread of this infectious disease. So sure. what I would say is you know, we don't really know exactly what the benefit of what we've been doing over the past couple of weeks is going to provide for us. But we have to keep going with this because what we are seeing with this virus, what we know is, is that it definitely spreads in closed settings. So that cruise ship that, you know, the Diamond Princess cruise ship, a lot of transmission in that closed environment. And we have seen some transmission in closed settings here in some of our initial cases here in the United States and in Philadelphia. And so I think to the extent that people can stay separate from other people, at least during this critical period that's now and ahead of us in the coming weeks, we will be able to hopefully try to, you may have heard the term flatten the curve. And that really is the idea of you, you could let the thing run wild and nobody does social distancing and then it affects a big proportion of the population all at once or over a two or three week period. That's what we don't want because then you'll have this huge demand for health resources all at the same time. And that will overwhelm our our clinical community. So the idea of something like Steve, I'm sorry I have to cut you short. Thank you for these reminders. We're, We're out of time. We could go on and on, and I really appreciate your help. I want to remind our guests that in times of darkness, we look for light and hope. And our extended family is filled with joy today because just before midnight, we welcomed my nephew's new baby, Emma, and just after midnight, my niece's new baby, Claire. So visit yourradio.com. God bless you all. And remember, your health is your wealth. Thank you, Steve, Ed, John, and Dan. Wonderful team. Thank you so much. Great stuff from your radio doctor here today. And on behalf of Dr. Marianne Ritchie, we hope the listening audience uh, enjoyed consuming all of the information brought to you live today on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. Remember, you can go to yourradiodoctor.com or radio.com and listen to the full hour of the show. Again, our gracious thanks to uh, Dr. Steve Alice, Dr. Ed Jasper, Dr. John Zerlo, and of course, Dan Hilferty, the CEO. CEO of Independence Blue Cross uh, for joining uh, Mary Ann uh, earlier in the show. As we say goodbye on this Sunday morning, uh, we're going to leave you this morning uh, with a little bit more uh, of that interview with Dr. Mary Ann and Dan Hilferty. Stay safe, everyone. Here's one thing, Mary Ann, that I'd like to really uh, leave you with because I know we're getting near the end of our time. The work of Dr. Rich Schneider, as you referenced, is, has been heroic in terms of coordinating all of our efforts with his team in response to this coronavirus. He is working closely with his predecessor in the role as chief medical officer at Independence, Dr. Tony Coletta, who we both know well. They are, through Tony's efforts, spearheading uh, an approach to make sure that the home health services that we have, be it Penn Medicine's Home Health Resources, Jefferson's, Holy Redeemer's, throughout the network, that where appropriate, folks who are impacted by the coronavirus should be treated at home in a coordinated approach so that we slow the, the, the onslaught of uh, demand for inpatient beds in already crowded hospitals. So just want the region to know, want you to know how important that connection, that collaboration to keep where appropriate to keep folks in the home setting with the appropriate uh, care that they need from health professionals, freeing up beds for those who really either need them today or may need them in the coming weeks. Thanks for listening to your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie, a Jacob Media production. If you're interested in learning more about the power of the radio hour, contact Joe Krause at 267-261-3428. This program is a paid commercial announcement and in no way represents the views of WPHT or its management.